Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This is episode 316, and in it, I talk with Dr. Justin Sledge of the Esoterica YouTube channel about the philosophy of ancient Greco-Roman astrology and the relationship between astrology and some of the different philosophical and religious schools during that time period, basically during the Hellenistic and Roman era. So this was originally structured as an interview where Justin was interviewing me for his YouTube channel based on my um, experience as the author of a book on ancient astrology titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune. But the discussion went so well that I've decided to release it as an episode of the Astrology Podcast on my channel as well, and Justin's given me permission to do that. So the focus of the discussion is talking about the relationship between astrology and different philosophical and religious schools during the Hellenistic and Roman periods. And during the course of the discussion, we touched on uh, Platonism, Aristotelianism, Stoicism, Hermeticism, Gnosticism, uh, Christianity, fate, free will, determinism, different conceptualizations of the mechanism underlying astrology, and a lot more. It was a pretty sweeping discussion, and we just recorded it uh, last night on August 17th, 2021, at approximately uh, starting at 6.20 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, for those that want to know. So with that little introduction out of the way, let's go ahead and jump right into the interview. Well, I am very excited tonight to be sitting down and talking with Chris Brennan, one of the premier astrologers and authors on astrology, who, in my opinion, has probably written one of the most definitive uh, both histories and textbooks of astrology, his uh, masterpiece, Hellenistic Astrology. I'm really excited to have you here on Esoterica, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here on your channel. It's really wonderful to have you. Of course, astrology is a maybe one of the most decisive aspects of the history of Western esotericism, and I'm really happy to be in somewhat in both of our wheelhouses tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking about the relationship of Hellenistic philosophy with uh, your expertise, Hellenistic astrology. And of course, I have a background in uh, philosophy. I somehow managed to do a PhD in it, and so having some background in uh, ancient philosophy in your enormous background in Hellenistic astrology, I'm really looking forward to having a conversation around um, the intersection of philosophical issues and astrological issues as they emerge, and in many ways, I think, in the cradle of uh, Western esotericism, Western philosophy, Western science, and of course, Western um, astrology. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, um, I am too. And we did our episode on on my podcast last month on ancient Jewish views of astrology, and that was just a small. That was amazing. I was so happy with how that came out and how much ground we covered of like over two or three thousand years of history. Um, I think we have a similar task of a huge, you know, gargantuan thing to undertake tonight that's in front of us. But uh, if anybody can pull this off, I think it's going to be be the two of us. Sounds about right. I think you know we'll get through what we get through, and uh, what we don't get through. The best thing about not getting through things is, uh, well, we have the future ahead of us. Hopefully, to continue to uh, have these kind of discussions. So I hope that's yeah. Hope that's in the future possibility. And and just to sort of return to something you had said before that, but um, you know, astrology was very much integrated, and if not completely integrated, there were relationships between astrology and many of the 
major philosophical schools and religious traditions in the ancient world in like the Hellenistic period and the Greco-Roman era in general. And that's one of the things that makes the study of astrology so fascinating and, and until recently overlooked was just how much influence it did have on some of the big philosophical and religious questions of the day 2,000 years ago. Oh, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's. I think you can't really, in some ways, study the kind of things that folks are doing in the philosophical world without, at the same time, understanding how they're looking at the world above them, the celestial world. Because in in a in a very strong way, the celestial world and the terrestrial world and the spiritual world were all one continuum for these guys, for me, mostly these guys. <clears throat> and so, looking at that as one continuous idea. Is going to be a hugely important part of how to understand uh, philosophy, and it's amazing to me that if you take upper-level philosophy classes in the university environment, um, you actually just don't learn about the intersection of astrology or the intersection uh, even of medicine in these disciplines. So, yeah, and it's starting to become a little bit more um, accepted in academia, and you're starting to see more and more sort of PhD um, students doing really interesting work in this area. But yeah, I mean, the connection between the cosmos and humanity is like one of the most fundamental philosophical and religious questions of, of all time, no matter what culture you're talking about. And that's where the entry point is for astrology, because that's also what the primary focus of astrology always was in whatever culture. Um, so you can sort of start to understand why there was some overlap there. Right. I think that's true. I think that's true. Let's get into the Hellenistic world a little bit, right? Because that's where, in many ways, the the different currents of astrology, Babylonian astrology, Egyptian astrology, that's where those currents are really going to come together and be formed there in that Alexandrian milieu. And so to talk a little bit about that world, and I think one of the things that really jumps out to me about that world, and I'd be interested to hear your, your analysis of this, is that on the one hand, the Alexandrian Hellenistic world is a world of enormous technological development and mathematical development. Uh, alchemy is being developed, astrology is being developed. So there are all of these technical philosophical developments happening, but at the same time, it's a world of social chaos that uh, you have the collapse of the whole project of, of Alexander to unify the world under one Hellenistic thing. And what the way that one way of telling the story of Hellenistic philosophy is to describe the various forms of philosophy that developed at that time, whether it's Stoicism, Epicureanism, Skepticism, even Hermeticism and Gnosticism, as essentially what are get called coping philosophies, which is to say they're ways of engaging with the world as to deal with it because it's harsh and scary and bad and chaotic. And so Stoicism says, look, we're going to kind of disattach our emotions from the world. Epicureanism says we're going to disattach our the way we live and sort of live in a you know, garden with our buddies. Uh, skepticism says we're just not going to hold any judgments about the world. Hermeticism, you know, says we're going to basically try to escape the world through, through spiritual purification. Gnosticism says we're going to escape it through, uh, you know, spiritual getting out of this world of the prison. And I think the way that astrology links up to that is that astrology is also perhaps one of these uh, intersecting coping philosophies in that the way that it copes is by trying to deeply understand how the world's going to be. Right? How what's going to happen? And at some level, if you know what's going to happen, then at some level you might be able to have some control over it. And to what degree do you see that this sort of um, this idea that these various philosophical schools are sort of coping philosophies? And do you see astrology 
uh, emerging in and mapping onto that characterization. Yeah, I mean, one thing I like about that is, and one thing to understand early on that I think has been really important for me to understand, very useful for me to understand that I don't think is discussed enough when talking about um, some of these different philosophical schools and the time period in which they flourished is also understanding the progression and development of astrology over the course of its history and recognizing that there are different eras in terms of the practice of astrology and the types of astrology being practiced. And somehow, sometimes that's what actually influenced some of these philosophical and religious schools in the types of questions they were asking and the types of implicit um, assumptions they were making about the cosmos, especially from the Hellenistic era onward. Um, so I wanted to mention that just because it's really fascinating that the first, you know, for thousand years or two thousand years in Mesopotamia, they had the practice of what's called mundane astrology, which is just the application of the idea of astrology that planetary alignments somehow tell you things about what's going on on Earth or about the future. Um, in reference to the country or different countries as a whole, so it's it's very much not focused on the individual. It's focused on the collective in some way. Uh, but but then in 410 BCE, there's this new development in Mesopotamia where we suddenly have the introduction of the concept of natal astrology and the concept of birth charts. And this took the idea of astrology that there's a correlation between celestial movements and earthly events, and it personalized it by saying that. The alignment of the cosmos on the day that a person or the moment that a person was born has something specific to say about their life and about their future. And so that principle has a lot of like implications in it about individuals and their lives and how they're set up and what their relation is to the cosmos, as well as that there may be something predetermined to some extent about the future. And I think it's really interesting to see how many of the Hellenistic era philosophies grew up um, with that cultural context in mind. So you have you know the Stoics that are practicing in a completely deterministic context where they they think that everything is is predetermined in a person's life from the moment moment of birth. Um, you also have Hermeticism and Gnosticism operating in this broader context where they have very deeply ingrained beliefs about fate and um, what is indicating a person's fate and to what extent you can break free of a person's fate um, as indicated by the planets and by astrology. Um, so that's like one thing just in order to situate some of those. And when you're talking about coping philosophies, one of the questions is, what are they coping with? And part of the overarching thing that most philosophies are dealing with from the 4th century BCE forward is this question of fate and predetermination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, this 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 question of fate, I think, is central to the conversation around Hellenistic astrology. That that is the core thing that they're trying to deal with is what to do, how to how to navigate fate, and what is the relationship of 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 our individual fate to the to the larger cosmic system, um, and. It's interesting this shift, right, from um, from mundane astrology in the Mesopotamian world to where they develop natal charts. Do natal charts continue to be cast in the Mesopotamian context, or does it is there a, is there sort of a sea change to to natal charts after that? Is that does that style of does that does that way of doing astrology does that is that a sort of sea change in the in the way of 
of relating to fate, not as a, a nation state, which we also see in ancient Israel, but as a, a, the way that we will navigate it now will be through understanding our own individual fate. Yeah. So the the Babylonian or Mesopotamian birth charts that are written on cuneiform tablets, there's a book called Babylonian Horoscopes by a scholar named Francesca Rocheberg, and she dates the earliest charts in cuneiform to 410 BCE, but then they continue all the way up until about the first century BCE. And right about the time those cuneiform tablets with birth charts stop happening is the same time that suddenly that concept shows up in Greek horoscopes. And all of a sudden you have um, this increasing number starting with a very few in the first century BCE to hundreds of them over the next few centuries that eventually peaks in the second and third centuries before declining um, after the advent of, of Christianity. So um, there was this new development and invention of a system sometime around the first century BCE where there was a new approach to astrology that was primarily focused on birth charts and a number of new techniques and concepts were introduced at that time uh, to create a system that was primarily geared around um, birth charts and interpreting those in a more advanced or, or complex method. And that's basically the creation of what we usually call today Hellenistic astrology because it emerged in Alexandria around the time of the, Hel the late Hellenistic period and was very much a product of the Hellenistic period and many of the um, assumptions that were being made in you know, philosophy and medicine and metaphysics and other things like that. But um, that system was very much focused on natal astrology from that point forward and um, very much focused on the concept of fate as being indicated um, in the alignment of the cosmos at the moment of birth. Right. So if you were to ask a, uh, a learned astrologer in the Hellenistic period, right, in the first century BCE, first century of the Common Era, second century of the Common Era, how do you think they would define astrology for themselves? How what would they define they, it? Yeah, what, what might they say? And I imagine there's a lot of latitude, you know, uh, among people, but if you were to sort of get the word on the street about what, if someone were to, if someone were to want a definition of astrology in the Hellenistic period, what kind of definition would you, which, what would you might, would you give? Yeah, I mean, I struggled with that question for a long time because there was such a wide variety of different opinions on it. But what I came down to was that the fundamental thing is just there was a fundamental belief that there was a correlation between celestial movements of the planets and other stars and things like that, and what happens in terms of events on Earth. So that um, there's a mirroring or some sort of interaction between celestial movements and earthly events. And then within that context, there's um, kind of a wide an axis where on one axis, there's a belief of some astrologers that planetary movements are just um, signs or heavenly writing of events that are happening on Earth or of future events. Um, and that's what I call the sign-based model of astrology, where the planets are not causing things to happen, they're just indicating it sort of like a clock on the wall, to use like a modern analogy. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum is those who believed in another emerging Hellenistic view that the planets and stars were causing events to happen on Earth through some sort of celestial influence. Um, and there were various conceptualizations of that, but those, that was like one axis was whether an astrologer believed in an astrology of signs or an astrology of causes. 
And then on the other axis was the extent to which they believed that um, events were predetermined in a person's life or things were fully fated to occur or whether there was any negotiability or any room for maneuver or um, free will of, of some sort to use like a later sort of term that still kind of fits in a way that's accurate to describe what they were talking about. So some of the astrologers believed that things were completely predetermined and the purpose of astrology was just to find out your fate so that you knew what you had to accept about your life in the future in a very stoic sense. And then there were others, there was a whole spectrum, but on the other end of that spectrum were those who indicated that or, or believed that um, astrology just indicated events that were um, partially predetermined, but that the future was more negotiable and that things were not fully fixed, even if they were to a certain extent. Right. So this is an interesting, and you have, I think you have this in your book, in fact, this sort of quadrant model, right? Where we have the signs versus uh, causation model, right? And those are very metaphysically different and very physically different because we, because if it's a sign model, right, it's just like the, the clock, like you said, the clock ticking on the wall. It simply tells us the time. It doesn't make time happen. Uh, whereas the causal model really beckons into existence a whole structure by which one has to begin to analyze how exactly the uh, the celestial world is doing that causation, and there are lots of competing theories about how that causal that causal relationship is happening. So we can get more into that causal story in just a little bit because I really find that it's interesting that almost every philosophical school gave a different causal theory about how that mechanism worked. Um, and so I think what, again, what links back to this, right, is, is this question between some kind of hard determinism, right, and some kind of free will, and that being a spectrum that you could fall on, that either things are hardcore determined or they are, uh, that you have some degree of free will. And the interesting question here is, at what to what degree are concepts like fate or destiny or accident or necessity um, chance, right? These are sort of ideas that <clears throat> I think now we think of in a much less metaphysical way. But of course, the ancient Greeks especially really not only thought of them as metaphysical structures of reality, right? So you have someone like um, Anaximenes, he really believed that uh, fate, uh, Moira, right? Fate and uh, Tuke, chance, actually pre-existed the gods. That they were sort of primordial forces of being, ontological forces that even existed before the gods, and even the gods are bound over to them at some level, which I think is a really interesting idea that fate and chance are not uniquely affecting us. They're unique, they're affecting everything, including even the gods, which I find to be a really interesting kind of thing. Um, but could you say something about how maybe the Hellenistic world articulated some of these concepts around? Uh, uh, fate or Moira, Anaki, a destiny. Uh, you know, you have uh, the really big idea in uh, in the ancient Stoic world of Hymarmene, right? Uh, a kind of moderate fate. It's a fate that you have, but it's negotiable at least to some degree. Um, and uh, other kinds of ideas, Tuche, chance, and things like that. Um, how are, how do you see these various kinds of ideas playing out, playing themselves out in the in the Hellenistic world of of uh, the development of astrology at that time. Sure. And here's that diagram you were mentioning um, just from my book where we're talking right. about those four yep. philosophical positions and that axis of signs versus causes or complete versus partial determinism. Yeah, this is a really helpful diagram. 
uh, that I really enjoyed in your book about this idea that, um, again, that, that signs don't imply causation, right? Um, they could be communicating. In fact, I think Chrysippus even says, um, Chrysippus, of course, has a much more deterministic view of, of nature than a lot of folks. Chrysippus, of course, is the third founder of Stoicism. In fact, in many ways, he's the real founder of Stoicism. And he argued, I think, uh, this really beautiful argument that that the the gods care about us, the gods like us, which is negotiable. <laughs> but I like the idea that the gods like us. And because the gods like us, and because the gods can see past, present, and future all at once, they do the job of looking to the future and then communicating what's going to happen to us in the heavenly bodies. And if we're smart enough, we can decipher them and then come to accept what's going to happen to us. Right. That, that I like the idea that the that Chrysippus's model of astrology is it, it is determined, right? We can't figure out how it's determined. The gods know how it's determined, however, and they communicate the structure of that determination to us and the celestial bodies such that the, you know, those of us who are wise enough can figure that out and then uh, become at peace with uh, what's about to happen to us. I've always found that this Chrysippan idea very, uh, I don't know, it's something, there's something beautiful about it and also it maintains that stoic rigor that uh, that your task is not to change fate, your task is simply to accept it and become e even-minded about it, apatheia, that you're simply supposed to be unemotional because there's no crying about spilled milk, even if the spilled milk is going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, and that's so crucial for understanding, um, first understanding Stoicism and understanding that philosophical backdrop and, and the popularity of Stoicism in the late Hellenistic and early Roman period. Um, even at the highest levels, with you know philosopher emperors like Marcus Aurelius, who truly believed that every event in a person's life was predetermined, and therefore, if you truly believe that, and it's not just predetermined in a mechanical sense, but it's predetermined through hemarmene, which is is fate, is the Greek word essentially the primary word for fate, um, that is due to or the result of. A providential ordering of events according to a divine plan, and that plan is the best plan possible because it emanates or it comes from essentially from God or or is God in some sense. And therefore, if that's true, then the best thing that you can do in that context is to accept your fate and learn how to be okay with that, whatever happens, whether it's a subjectively positive or a subjectively negative event, but to have the same essential emotional outlook and reaction to that. And the sort of idealized Stoic sage that the Stoic philosophers like Chrysippus or other Stoics talk about is the sage who's become so enlightened that they're, they're able to accept any events that occur in their life um, without any problem and, and to treat them all with the same essential and fundamental outlook. And one of my realizations at one point when I was studying the Hellenistic astrologers was realizing that the, the primary focus of Hellenistic astrology for many of the astrologers, no matter what their philosophical position was, was doing the same thing, which is helping individuals to learn about their fate and learn about what their future is so that they know what events they have to accept about their life and to become okay with. Um, for those who were not, who had not received or, or achieved the sort of enlightenment of a Stoic sage, because of course, even though that that Stoic sage is like the idealized version of what we we should all theoretically want to be like or achieve, 
it's easier said than done. And in reality, for most people, if there's some really heavy stuff coming down in your future at some point that you're going to need to accept and deal with, um, it's actually going to be helpful in a very practical sense to know about that ahead of time so that you can begin preparing yourself um, even years in advance. And that was truly, no matter what the outlook of the different astrologers was, that was the one philosophical position that I kept seeing different astrologers repeat over and over again um, in the different astrological texts, whatever their philosophical outlook was. No, and I think that's a really fascinating point is that so many of the astrologers argued that exactly what you said, that knowing what's going to happen will help us come to peace with it. And the counter argument to that, right, is the so-called lazy argument, right? That you see that was uh, the lazy argument was was uh, uh, leveled at the Stoics that said, look, if you're going to go to, if you're going to die, going to a doctor is not going to change it. So either you're going to get better or you're going to die. It doesn't really matter. You shouldn't go see a doctor. And it's, the idea is that you shouldn't do anything because everything is fated. And the, the Stoics have this interesting idea of co-fatedness that Yes, things are determined, but at the same time, they're determined both from the outside world, but also what you do matters too. And so it's your comportment toward it that matters as well. And so I've always found this interesting kind of dual way of looking at astrology, where on the one hand, it can inspire a person to apathy, right? It's just, it's apathy in the bad sense of the word. You just don't do anything because nothing matters and everything is already faded, as opposed to the idea is that it, that a lot of what's going on in the process of Hellenistic astrology is actually trying to make people people into better people, um, and I find that to be an interesting kind of uh, debate in that world. Where on the one hand, determinism seems to lead to or could lead to a kind of apathetic, "Why should I do anything?" And the other side is, "No, it's precisely because it's determined that now the onus is on you to be a better person." Because it's going to happen. Like you have, it's the char- Your character is shown by how you respond to what happens to you, not by trying to change things, right? That's an act of desperation. Um, and I find this relationship between uh, fate as something that's harmful and frightening. On the one hand, right, we see that, for instance, in the and and perhaps the Gnostics, right, where the Gnostics really do view the world as a kind of prison and a kind of cage. And that the planets themselves are conspirators, right? The archons, right? The planets are actually part of of manipulating the world to keep you locked inside of it. They're these evil entities that 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 fate you, but they fate only your physical body. And you see the same kind of idea in Hermeticism as well, although not quite as extremely dualistic. And the idea there is that you can escape fate, but only spiritually, right? That if you comport yourself in the correct kind of spiritual way, doing the right kind of meditations or studying the right kinds of things or learning the right kinds of things that your spirit can escape the world of fate, but your body is still condemned to it. And so the task there is simply to not care about what happens to your body. The Stoics are much more optimistic. They think that, you know, that, that everything is sort of, that the world's not fundamentally bad. The world's driven by providence. So I think what's interesting about this is sort of the, the various shades that get thrown onto this problem where fate is thought of as something good or evil and uh, your relationship to it is thought of as revealing your character or you trying to escape from it at some level. Is there any one of those positions that you found especially enlightening, both from a historical point of view or philosophical point of view, but also enlightening in the in the practice of actually doing astrology uh, now? Are there any one of those positions that you found especially, uh, these variances that you found especially enlightening? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, one thing I want to say about 
the the fate issue is that the reason why all of the later philosophical traditions from the Hellenistic period forward get tied up in this notion that the planets are somehow connected with fate is actually due to Plato and due to um, the Timaeus and especially the myth of Ur in the Republic, where um, Plato ends up, you know, creating this um, conceptualization where the planets get tied in with Hamarmene. And so from that point forward, in almost every philosophical school, we get this assumption that the planets are somehow tied in with fate. And each of the philosophical schools deals with that, or the religious schools deals with that in different ways. For example, you know, through either Stoicism or through Gnosticism or Hermeticism and different shades of whether that's a positive or negative thing based on the broader philosophy of whether the um, physical material world that we're in is fundamentally a positive providential place or whether it's fundamentally a, a negative one, like in the some Gnostic schools. So I wanted to mention that first, but then also go back to your mention of, um, I think it was Chrysippus who was responding to the lazy argument with that cylinder analogy and with the idea that there is both an internal fate as well as an external fate that happens to us. Um, and this, I think, became really crucial for astrology. And you can see astrologers taking this idea and running with it that was already there in the Stoic school. Um, but Chrysippus's analogy was that it's not just external things happening and pushing to you, but also your internal predispositions are faded. And he uses the analogy of if you had a cylinder that was sitting at the top of a hill and somebody pushes it, and then it subsequently rolls down the hill on its own uh, accord, basically. And so he, he was making this argument that you have both external events sometimes that do push you in certain directions, and that's like your external fate. But then also the cylinder rolled down the hill because of its own cylindrical uh, sort of design or nature internally. And so that's the internal concept of fate of, you know, it wouldn't roll if it was like a block or something. It instead would stay, even if it was given a push, would stay sort of um, sitting in the same location. So I have to think the astrologers that this would have been in the back of the mind of most of the astrologers when they're talking about the concept of natal astrology and the birth chart, where you have both um, the internal fate of the native, which is the birth chart showing certain things about their character and their predispositions, like if a person has a tendency towards being um, overly aggressive or like quick to anger as a character trait, or whether the opposite, whether they tend to have be given to depressive episodes or something like that. And so they have these internal characteristics, or each of us has these internal character qualities that we're born with or that we we have as sort of inbuilt traits, which is the internal fate. But then occasionally you also have these external events that happen in our life, which are also connected with the planets and with the concept of um, planetary transits in astrology, which are indicating periods in a person's life when certain events are more likely to happen. And that would be um, the concept of external fate, of being put in cer certain circumstances where different people are going to react to different stimuli in different ways. And this, this is one of the other sort of underlying assumptions that's happening in the astrology that you can see is either taken by and being influenced by some of these arguments that are happening in the philosophical schools, like with Chrysippus's internal versus external um, you know, analogy, 
Or alternatively, those could be things that were happening in the culture because of astrology that were somehow influencing things like the Stoic philosophical positions that were happening. It's really murky and hard to say because we've lost so many sources from the Hellenistic period in both the Stoic philosophical tradition as well as in the astrological tradition. So it's sometimes hard to know who's influencing what. No, right. I mean, well, the most famous, I think Chrysippus is the most tragic in that regard. He, uh, Diogenes Laertius says he wrote 705 books and exactly zero survive. Uh, he only survives in Stoa and uh, fragments in the SF, uh, SVF. Um, and to go back to your comment about the Timaeus, I've all, always found that that, I think it's only one line in the Timaeus has had such a decisive impact in many ways on how things, how the history of astro astrology developed. Where he says, I think it's that one line, I forget exactly where it is, where he says, you know, all these, these conjunctions and oppositions and retrograde emotions and things, and uh, and they could be portents of all kinds of terrors, I think is what he says. I think it's just one line where he, and of course he comes back later and says some more things about astrology and the laws. I'm just always struck by how sometimes what appear to be singular throwaway lines can be decisive in the history of, of philosophy, astrology, and things like that. Well, and you know what's funny about that line? That one line actually is there's some scholars who kind of have always given a side eye to that line and wondered if that line wasn't a later insertion from Thrasyllus, who was the first century astrologer who um, was the astrologer to the emperor Tiberius. And he is famous for having arranged uh, Plato's dialogues uh, in the first century into the form that we have them in today or into the sectioning that we have them in today. And some have Speculated, or at least tried to put that off on Thrasyllus, and whether Thrasyllus, you know, inserted that one what seems to be almost like pro-astrology throwaway line in Plato. Um, but even without that line, you don't necessarily need it for, as a justification for astrology because there is this other connection that Plato makes between uh, Hamarmene and the planets, and that really is the thing that became the most influential in all the subsequent philosophical schools that then had to wrestle with and deal with the implications of what does it mean for the planets to be involved in a person's fate, especially their personal fate. And that's one of the reasons why, um, in the subtitle for my book, is you know Hellenistic astrology, the study of fate and fortune, because I truly think that in the first century BCE, somebody tried to create. A system that could be used to study a person's individual fate um, through the use of the birth chart, right? Yeah, and I think that even the myth of Ur too, right? You have this idea that the, the planets are connected to the lots that people get, and that determines their um, their fate once they get born, right? Well, they'll, get, they'll roll back to the to the world and come back either righteous or vicious, depending on what fate they ended up with. But yeah, yeah so you, yeah, it's there, it's there in the Republic as well, and the laws, I think. And let's dwell, dwell on that because it's another important like backdrop, which is really interesting and sort of metaphysical, especially in the Middle Platonists and and some of the later the Neoplatonists, where you know you have that idea of the souls that are traveling to Earth, and then they on the outskirts of Earth um, before being born, they're all given a selection of lives, and they're all casting lots um, using the concept of chance, which is tied into the concept of of kleros or lots. Um, like a lottery, and then they pick lives based on that, and then immediately are, are born into those lives and have to live them out in some way. Um, but this notion that a choice is made somehow before you're born, and then you're living that out ahead of time, has really interesting philosophical implications that became very, in a very practical sense, became very tangible 
um, with the rise of natal astrology, which says that it can tell you based on the moment of birth uh, what the person will do and what they will become in their life and whether they will achieve greatness or whether they will become a beggar or, or what have you. Because you know, thinking about Plato's time frame, Plato was born around, let's say, 428 roughly BCE, and the very first Mesopotamian birth chart that we know of that survives dates to 410 BCE. So we're talking very close, like time frame there in terms of um, whether that concept would have been something he would have been aware of and would have been in the back of his mind. And we don't know. There's no ever explicit statement um, in Plato about astrology. But it's just interesting thinking of those two things sort of roughly being in the same time frame and how influential they would become over subsequent centuries. Right, and I think that's also. And I'm not uh, my 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 history of ancient Greek. It's not quite as good as it could be. And I, I think that's also the same time period where the names for the planets actually shifted too, as opposed to just being the the twinkling one or the this one or the that one. They actually change and become uh, deified. They actually get linked to the gods in a way that they I don't think they had been previously. So in Homer and Hesiod, for instance, the names of the planets. Don't they're just descriptive names of the planets, like the bright one or the blinking one, and it's I think around the fifth century BCE where you get the shift where the planets are now linked to the gods, and now the gods are expressing their will or causing their will via the planets at some level, and that's impacting the world below us. Um, and as the souls filter down through, they're passing all these different beings, these creatures, right? The gods become alive. And that they're the gods sort of always kind of imagine as ping pong or not ping pong, uh, pinball, right? The souls are bouncing off these things and picking up a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And depending on where you fall, you might bounce off Saturn real hard and, you know, pick up some melancholy on the way down or whatever. Um, and, you know, the, by the time they hit the, the lunar level, right, as they pass through that lunar level, they've gotten their ticket, right? And then they fall through and forget everything. And I think that's what's interesting about astrology is it says we can kind of that, that, pinball journey down through the to the celestial world we can reconstruct that based on when you were born and now we know what'll happen what you'll be what kind of dispositions you'll have or at least what you'll have to struggle with at some level i think it's also interesting in plato too that in the myth of ur part of what makes ur interesting is that he escapes his fate at some level right he's he wakes up on he wake he 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 goes he's on his funeral pyre and wakes up and he has he remembers everything and you know you have the people going up into the the heavens to be rewarded to see the forms, and the people going down into the the hell Tartarus to be punished. Erd's interested in the judges. How do you get to be one of the judges? And they've escaped fate. And I always found that the that the question of the judges, and of course, then Ur is rewarded with the the ability to come back to Earth and, and teach everything. So I've always found that myth to be. Um, I don't know. The myth of Atlantis gets all the credit in Plato, but the myth of Ur does so much more heavy lifting. Yeah, especially for in modern times, people are sort of focused on that. But in ancient times, they were very much more focused on those little lines about the planets and about souls choosing their life before being incarnated and the spindles that were being weaved by the fates and how the fate was ratified immediately once the choice was made. Um, that was a good point that you made that it's, it's around this time, the time of Plato or shortly after that in Greek, suddenly we see the names of certain gods being applied to the planets. And I think that's in the Epinomis, which is sometimes by modern scholars attributed to one of Plato's students, Philip of Opus. And it's in that text that for the first time we see 
Um, certain Greek gods have been picked who match certain Mesopotamian deities. So in the earlier Mesopotamian tradition, it's like they had specific gods like um, Nurgle, the god of war, who was associated with the planet Mars. And then so somebody around the time or shortly after Plato did the same thing where they went through the pantheon, the Greek pantheon, and they picked out Ares, the god of war, and, and set, gave that to the name, that name to Mars and associated that god. And in doing so, explicitly then set up a continuity between the Mesopotamian astrological and astronomical and religious traditions and cultural traditions that then fed directly into Greek and carried through certain assumptions about what, what each of those planets meant um, astrologically um, into the Greek tradition that still persists 2,000 years later where we still have you know, the Roman names that are applied to some of those planets. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, it's really, that's a, so again, one of these decisive shifts in the, in the history of, of, of astrology, astronomy, and, you know, most people have never heard these folks' names before. It's just one of those things where I, I just find, um, again, sort of the esoteric side of history where, you know, these kind of associations of Ishtar and Venus, right? And this kind of, a, these associations happened and, We've inherited them, right? But it it could have gone another way, right? It, it, it's conceivable that it could have gone another way, uh, right. and yet it, or, it, it didn't, or yeah, it never happened or, at all. Or um, Ishtar, and then picking the Greek Aphrodite as the the deity, then in the Greek pantheon that they associated then with Venus and the goddess of of you know love and and things like that. Right. Yeah. I. Yeah. It's just those associations have stuck so you know so dramatically. Um, yeah, I find that just incredibly fascinating, that shift in language. And one wonders, right, is, uh, it's always the eternal question, is the shift in language responsible or is this actually a, a titanic shift happening at the register of the technology of astrology and then that is shifting, right? This is being imported for Babylon and then appropriated by the Greeks. And that seems a much more likely scenario to me. Wow, what do you yeah. think? I mean, I think the important thing is just that it, it, it sets up a, content, a sort of continuity between the Mesopotamian astrological tradition and some of the assumptions they were making about the planets and what they mean um, in an earthly context, and then setting up a continuity so that now Greek-speaking peoples, which is you know basically most of the Mediterranean after a certain point, after the 3rd century BCE or so, suddenly is, is having a similar conceptualization where they're using those names consistently for the planets, and then when that planet is mentioned, that's automatically going to evoke a range of meanings and myths and stories that are going to make the person think of certain things or certain concepts. Right, right, and I think that's interesting because that also becomes sort of grist for the mill for people to criticize those associations. I think of Plotinus uh, as an example of someone who didn't like the idea that Aries or uh, Saturn or would be bad. They'd be malefic, evil planets or something. They would have an evil influence on someone's life. And I think that's a strong way of putting it, but they would have a negative impact on someone's life because Plotinus believed that the entire celestial world was inherently good and did only good. And the idea that they would do anything bad at all to our realm, Plotinus thought was just a, you know, a, a completely uh, bizarre idea because to him, they were, the, the planets were, were, divine spiritual creatures who only emanated the good they were emanations of the good and therefore they could they could cause no bad down here and so Plotinus thought yeah the it is the case that the planets are emanating force to us right they are exerting things upon us but not the way 
you know the the uh, the astrologers of the time said. So it's interesting that that also becomes something that you know where someone like Plotinus wants to criticize astrology. He criticizes the kinds of associations that were made with with those planets. Yeah, well, and Plotinus, his main preoccupation because he's you know living in a post. Um, I want to say Ptolemaic in my own language, but post the astrologer Ptolemy in the second century, where Ptolemy's big program was to reconceptualize astrology as a natural science that was based on natural principles of efficient, essentially causation that was emanating from the planets and was filtering down here into the earthly realm and was causing events to happen or causing people to behave in a certain way. And that was how astrology was tied in with fate for Ptolemy was through a causal chain of events that was emanating from the planets and emanating from the stars. And that causal conceptualization of astrology very quickly, within a century after Ptolemy, became the dominant or, or prevailing view of astrology into the medieval and Renaissance periods, um, especially in Europe. Um, but that's what I think a century later, essentially, Plotinus is primarily objecting to in his famous um, text, a uh, tract on whether the stars are signs or causes. And the main thing he's objecting to is not the idea of astrology, which um, Peter Adamson um, wrote some very interesting papers on this, I think like 10 or 15 years ago, where he points out that um, Plotinus was not objecting to the idea that astrology was real because he believed that astrology was a legitimate phenomenon. What he was objecting to was the idea that the planets and stars are causing events to happen on Earth, but instead Plotinus argued that uh, the planets and signs were acting as signs of future events rather than causes. And that was his primary preoccupation and, and objection because if they weren't just signs of future events that were indicating what would happen if they were causes, then that would put some of the um, onus on the planets in terms of bad or good events happening in a person's life, which he didn't think was um, correct from a philosophical standpoint. But he didn't otherwise seem to object to the idea of astrology in general, just this question of what is the mechanism. Right. And that gets us to this big question of, of mechanism, right? And that, that's the, the big uh, transition that happens there in the second century BCE with, with Ptolemy. Is that we do? I think, and you obviously you be the the expert here. That we do see a pretty definitive shift from a astrology of signs to astrology of causation with the you know things like the Tetrabiblos and other kinds of of documents. And that's also reflecting a shift, I think, in in the direction of a more Aristotelian worldview, where uh, Ptolemy basically imagines something like Aristotle's universe, right? We have sort of God at the middle, and there's almost these celestial spheres that are connected together. They're in, you know, they're see-through or whatever, the crystal spheres. And what's happening is that the center one is moving and moving all the other ones, moving all the other ones, moving all the other ones until it's like a set of, it's like a transmission where the center transmitter is transmitting all of the efficient causation out into the world. And that eventually reaches the stars, and the that obviously reaches down here to the Earth as as well, and so that gives us one major uh, causal mechanism for um, how astrology worked. Do you see the the astrology of signs surviving? You mentioned uh, Plotinus, but do you, do you see it surviving this Ptolemaic shift, or do you think that the Ptolemy is sort of the the sea change and and really reshaping and and transforming what exactly astrology was and how it worked. Do you think that he's 
sort of a, a definitive change in everything, or does the astrology of signs persist um, uh, in a in a way after him? Right. Yeah. Um, so that whole shift towards a more causal form of astrology goes back to Aristotle, at least at least in terms of the philosophical position, because of the idea that you mentioned that you have that Aristotle had that where he outlined just generally speaking some basic notion of celestial causation that you have the prime mover and that um, change sort of emanates from through through a series of levels from the prime mover uh, down through the planets and to the sublunar world and that all change um, uh, essentially goes back to that prime source on some level and Aristotle didn't go much further than that in terms of articulating that but subsequent um, you can see in like subsequent Aristotelian um, tracts and schools from the Hellenistic period onwards that they kept elaborating this idea and taking it further because of the earlier Platonic um, established tradition that the planets were connected with fate. And so the the Aristotelian answer to that of how the planets could be connected with fate started being through this notion of celestial causation that's emanating from the prime mover through the planets and then down into the sublunar sphere. Um, and there may have been different ideas about what exactly constituted that or what type of um, change or motion or um, what type of cause was involved because you do have like the four different types of cause in Aristotle, which is kind of an interesting issue in and of itself of, you know, were some of the astro Aristotelian astrologers truly talking about efficient causation being emanated by the planets or were they talking about one of the other three types of causation that was somehow being emanated by the planets, um, which is an interesting issue in and of itself. But I think in the late Hellenistic period, and certainly by the first century BCE, you start to see a mixture of views of whether the planets are causing events or just acting as signs, so that there was some sort of ambiguity about this in the early source texts that outlined this new system of astrology, this new approach to astrology that came about by the first century BCE. But definitely in the second century, when Ptolemy wrote the Tetrabiblos and firmly argued for a more Aristotelian and more causal view of astrology, because not just because his astrological text had so much weight to it, but because he also created what became the new paradigm for astronomy, and because he created essentially um, the new system for astronomical calculations through things like his tables and through the handy tables, which became then used for centuries to actually calculate planetary positions more accurately. And because that was like the hot new thing in terms of astronomical science, that meant that his astrological works were also taken more seriously and became more influential and more dominant amongst, especially like the higher classes of, of sort of like intellectual astrologers. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why it became dominant, and also it provided a nice um, set of protection from the second and third and fourth centuries onwards that became increasingly necessary to defend astrology as Christianity became more and more established as the established religion in Rome and became more and more hostile to astrology, especially due to its views on fate and free will. Which were sort of seen as antithetical in some ways to Christianity for theological reasons, due to the emphasis on free will to choose salvation. Um, so increasingly, astrologers would rely on Ptolemaic 
views and arguments in order to defend astrology as a natural science that's just working through causation and is part of the natural world, just like you know, sunlight allows plants to grow, and using analogies like that or that the moon affects the tides so that it's a natural phenomenon and not seen as something that is supernatural or that is um, impinging in any way on God's plan or on human free will. Um, so I think that's why the Ptolemaic, that's one of the reasons why the Ptolemaic, or some of the reasons why the Ptolemaic view of causation and causal astrology becomes dominant. But we do still see occasionally these references to the sign-based version of astrology. You know, Plotinus's tract being a major part of that one century after Ptolemy. But then we also have references in different astrologers like Hephaestu of Thebes, sometime around the early fifth century, that says whether astrology works through signs or causes. Um, regardless, this is an introductory text on how um, astrology works. And then he went through comparing the two different approaches of like Ptolemy's views to the views of Dorotheus of Sidon and sort of synthesizing those two approaches in the rest of his book. Um, so we do see even the astrologers still balancing or trying to treat this almost like a philosophical issue that almost didn't matter because what primarily mattered to the astrologers was the technical practice of how to interpret birth charts and pre predict the future. And that piece of it was almost, for mo the most part, unaffected by the question of how it works, just in the same way that, you know, I don't know exactly if somebody put a gun to my head and forced me to explain it how a microwave works, but I know how to operate one to like heat up some pizza. Um, even if I don't really know the, the mechanics exactly underlying it. Right. And I think that's what's interesting here as, as we get into the Hellenistic period and this question of causation is that it seems to me that there's a, there are sort of two issues at work here. One of them is sort of a disjunction between people practicing astrology and philosophers philosophizing about astrology. There seems to be a somewhat of an operative disjunction. And we can get into some of the other theories about how astrologers at that time thought it worked, because I've always found those incredibly interesting. Um, and it's interesting that there's a, another kind of a situation where while the Ptolemaic model proved to be enormously successful, almost every philosophical school at the time had some theory about how it worked. And I think it's interesting that when we think about the history of astrology, because the what I would call the mechanical model, the, the model uh, that sto that stems from Aristotle via Ptolemy, and it's also interesting that it's either it could be both efficient causation and final causation. It could also be God literally um, uh, moving the world to make the world do what the world does, but also God is is programming into the world the ends, and that would be fate, right? That God is actually saying, no, this is what the world's meant to be like. Uh, and of course, God's Aristotle's God is nothing like most people's conception of God. It's pure activity, thought thinking about itself. But because it's thought thinking about itself, it has the whole thing planned out. It's like a giant celestial computer, and it's basically programmed everything into nature, and nature is playing out that program at some level. And so it seems it's really interesting that it that the Ptolemaic model fits nicely with Aristotle because it does both the heavy lifting of um of describing how it happens, but also why it happens. That it's this is the it, you know, it does both at the same time, and so it's interesting that they link up so well. And of course, Aristotle will come to dominance um, in the in the in the Islamic world and eventually in the Christian world as well. So it's uh, so that but the causal model, which I think is still popular when I've read 
when I talk to people who do astrology and when I when I mention things about astrology, people often will talk about a sort of causal mechanism that's that's making fate the way that it is. What I find interesting is that in the Hellenistic world, they were half a dozen different competing schools of how astrology worked that just didn't make it. Um, and I think you know some of these we could go through some of these, and I think the Stoic model is especially um, is especially interesting in that the uh, the planets there they survive this periodic cycle of of destruction, right? The Stoics believe that the entire universe got recycled every once in a while. Uh, in fact, they thought they could. Some Stoics thought they could see in the stars. It's sort of the, the stars almost acting like a giant time bomb. The whole thing was ticking down to the moment in which the whole thing would just erupt in a vi fireball. And then they would reconstitute themselves and the whole process would begin again. And it's been going on forever, the eternal recurrence. And what's interesting, according to the Stoics, is that every individual planet um, remembers. They're kind of living beings. They, they remember the cycles of coming together and going apart. And because they remember, the, literally the, the, the past, the present, and the future is recorded in their motions. And so if you learn to decipher them, then you can literally see into the remote past and into the remote future uh, because they're just literally describing, they're ticking down this moment until the whole thing begins again. But on the surface that somehow they've recorded everything that's happened past, present, and future. And so a, a smart enough person could figure out how all that works and determine what's going to happen. Of course, you can't stop the ticking time bomb that is the universe according to the Stoics. You can just accept that it's about to happen or what's about to happen to you happen to you. I just find that that's a, a so different version of the Ptolemaic version that it's a completely different understanding of how the universe works. It's a totally different understanding about, it's a different understanding of why astrology works the way that it does, not because there's some causal mechanism raining down from the heavens, but because the heavens are literally recorded all this information and you can unlock it by understanding how they relate to one another. Um, do you have any other, uh, uh, um, causal mechanisms or causal uh, stories or philosophical theories about how the uh, the how astrology worked in the Hellenistic world that you find especially uh, illuminating or are different than what people might people might expect or are unusual compared to perhaps how they get thought about now yeah I mean one thing to mention is that it's interesting in the Ptolemaic model is that Ptolemy was not a hardline determinist uh, but instead, Believed that although the planets and, and stars influence uh, events on Earth and can influence a person to go in a certain direction, especially if the person is not aware of um, how they're being influenced, that when a person does become aware of how things, how celestial movements are influencing them, that that awareness in and of itself um, can mean that they can counteract it in some ways. And so, becoming aware of astrology for Ptolemy is partially. Something you do in order to counteract fate potentially, or to change your fate, even if only in certain subtle ways uh, by doing things slightly differently. Um, so there's an interesting thing about the Ptolemaic model that allows more room for movement and room for choice. Whereas, and and while later versions of that, like for example, Firmicus Maternus, who seems to have a causal view of astrology two centuries after Ptolemy, and mentions him. He also kind of like makes this offhand um, remark at some point that seems to be sort of dismissing Ptolemy's partially deterministic model, where 
Firmicus says it makes no sense to accept that there's some influence of fate, but then to limit it like that. So that uh, Firmicus seems to have accepted a fully deterministic and causal model of astrology versus some of the more stoically inclined astrologers who held a sign-based model like Valens um, will make these long statements about just using astrology to know your fate and know what you have to accept. Um, so I have this little like opening statement by in my book by Valens that is like one of his most famous philosophical digressions in his entire work from the middle of the second century. And he says, those who engage in the prediction of the future and the truth, having acquired a soul that is free and not enslaved, do not think highly of fortune and do not devote themselves to hope, nor are they afraid of death, but instead they live their lives undaunted by disturbance by training their souls to be confident and neither rejoice excessively in the case of good nor become depressed in the case of bad, but instead are content with whatever is present. Those who do not desire the impossible are capable of bearing that which is preordained through their own self-mastery, and being estranged from all pleasure or praise, they become established as soldiers of fate." So that's the famous soldiers of fate passage that you'll see like cited in a lot of historical and philosophical academic texts over the past few decades, because it's such a strikingly stoic sentiment that's coming from an astrologer and where the explicit statement about the purpose of astrology is learning your fate so that you know what you have to accept. Um, but it's it's not necessarily be done in a causal context, but instead maybe in this more sign-based context where the astrology is acting like an omen of what will happen in your future uh, from the moment of birth. Do you find that 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 do you find that that version of astrology uh, proved popular through the Middle Ages? Do you find that it's popular now when? When um, when you talk to people who are interested in astrology, the idea that that the task of astrology is basically sort of an adjunct to, to stoicism that uh, that look you I, you know I, I can't change the fact you know what is Epictetus says right that uh, if you if you love a if you love a pot uh, don't get too attached because pots are meant to break and if you love a wife don't get too attached because wives are meant to die um, and so the idea is if you understand the nature of a pot and you understand the nature of a wife well. You're not going to be upset when they do their nature, and ditto if you understand the nature of fate. When fate happens to you, you're not going to be terribly troubled by it because, well, that was the nature of what was going to happen. Um, I don't know. Do you do you find that those ideas resonate with people these days? Because it seems like we're we we're, we're I don't know we're kind of uh, spiritual metaphysical libertarians. We like to believe that we're free and nothing's really going to hold us down. And the idea that uh, it's that astrology is meant to aid in your achievement of apatheia. Do you do you find that that notion resonates at all these days? Uh, no, and that, I mean, what's funny about that is part of our Western culture heritage over the past two thousand years, and the reason for that, and the reason for that 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 sentiment no longer appeals to us is I think it was very popular for a few centuries, for a period of time, um, from the third and fourth from the 3rd century BCE onwards in the Hellenistic period during the heyday of Stoicism all the way into the 1st and 2nd centuries. and That's why you'll see the astrologers repeating sentiments like this over and over again because there was a broader societal acceptance of Stoicism and notion that you, the purpose of 
divination is to learn your future so that you know what to accept. But what's funny is I think the widespread acceptance of that for several centuries, which allowed astrology, which is based on such a deterministic premise, one way or another to flourish as it did um, in the first century BCE and first century CE and second and third centuries before it started to decline, the popularity of that led to a backlash. And part of that backlash was um, came through like a little known like religious sect, um, which was the the rise of Christianity. And part of the rise of Christianity, uh, this has been commented on and sort of debated amongst some philosophical and religious scholars over the past few decades or the past century. But the more and more I, I look into this and think about it, the more I realize. What was so appealing uh, about Christianity in the ancient world that we just simply cannot understand today is just how dominant astrology was and Stoicism was from a philosophical standpoint in the first and second centuries CE, and how for just a normal person who is not an enlightened Stoic sage who's just like ready to accept all events in the future, even the most terrible ones, with this. Um, steely stoic or cold stoic resolve in some sense for normal people who are not prepared for that to hear such negative things or any negative things coming up about your future that you have to accept due to fate. Um, if there is any group that comes to you or comes about at that time that says, you know what, all you have to do is um, believe in or accept this one. Um, guy into your life. And if you do that, we will free you from Hamar Mene and you will no longer be subject to the planets. And I, I believe and I, I really think that that was actually one of the main appeals of Christianity in the first few centuries was that um, it gave you a way out. And suddenly there was this new um, group that was saying that you could become free of fate and that Christians were no longer subject to fate or to the planets um, through their choice and through the act of um, their acceptance of, of Christ and, and things like that. And that's one of the reasons that led to it really taking off. Yeah, I think that's I think that's an excellent observation. And I think you see the same thing actually happening in other uh Christianity rivals, um, hermeticism right. being another, right? Where hermeticism puts a lot of emphasis on fate and says, yeah, but one can escape it through ritual purification and through spiritual purification that um, the body might be bound to fate, but the soul isn't. And so you one can escape. And in Gnosticism as well, um, that you see this kind of idea that the planets are these evil prison guards almost, and that uh, that the soul can escape through and there are lots of different mechanisms of escape and, and Gnosticism, Christi Gnostic Christianity being one, but also even in uh, Neopythagoreanism and Middle Platonism, and even in Neoplatonism, there are these ideas where in the sublunar world, there's some degree of free will, there's chance, free will, and necessity. And depending on the various kinds of things one does, uh, theurgical rites, magical rites, uh, various kinds of purifications, in the Middle Platonic and in the, the Neoplatonic world of theurgy and things like that, Iamblichus and Proclus, less Proclus, Iamblichus really, that one can at some level escape the power of fate through religious observance or through magical means and, and things like that. So it's interesting that at the time Christianity was arising, of course Christianity became the dominant uh, mode of this and eventually won out. 
But it seems like that backlash, that cultural backlash against stoicism and against um, this hardcore determinism that you see that was sort of stoicism plus astrology and, and mutual harmony syncing up with one another. And even in stoicism, they couldn't, you know, Posidonius and Panaitius went back and forth about whether or not astrology was um, was affecting things the way that that, that they, they mutually disagreed about. It's just interesting by the second and third centuries with the rise of Hermeticism, Christianity, Gnosticism, there's a cultural backlash against this idea and everyone's trying to escape fate. And I think that it's interesting that you see the same thing happen, not just in the Hellenistic world, but also, for instance, in the uh, the world of Northern Europe, pagan Northern Europe, where uh, weird, right? The concept of weird, which is a fate-like concept in the Anglo-Saxon world, was clearly a very powerful idea in pre-Christian pagan uh, piety, right? Resignation to fate was a was a you know, weird bith fool arad, I think is what the uh, wanderer says. And then these poems begin to change under the auspices of Christianity where you say, no, weird is not actually all binding. Uh, Christ is all binding and I can escape weird through through Christ. So it's interesting that this may have played itself out, not just in the Hellenistic world, but in other kinds of pagan milieus as well. And I wonder if in the neo-pagan world, fate is now playing a, a greater or lesser role. It'd be interesting to, to talk to some neo-pagan folk and Wiccan folk about the if, if one of the reconstructed things is this heavy emphasis on fate or is fate still sort of sitting on the shelf because it's kind of a bummer or whatever, I don't know, unless you're really wealthy or something, but uh, I guess it's going to get to you anyway. No, it doesn't really matter how wealthy you are. Um, and I, yeah, I just find this interesting that, that this, this uh, kickback uh, with Christianity and other forms of uh, other forms of uh, religiosity, spirituality, where fate is sort of something that they're, they have in their sights. And astrology also is something they're going to have in their sites as well. And it's not just the academic skeptics who are taking on astrology. It's also the Neoplatonists, it's the Christians, it's the Hermeticists. It's, it's, a, it's a wide range of people in this new religious uh, milieu. Um, do yeah, you see that playing a, itself out in other places? But yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point that it's not just Christianity that was reacting to it. It was all of the different, it was a bunch of different philosophical and religious traditions that were reacting to the dominance of astrology at that point and to the overwhelmingly prevailing trend that astrology and fate were intertwined. And um, so when you start to get after the first century and like the second and third and fourth century, Christian tracts that are attacks on astrology are, are attacks on the concept of fate. And their attacks on the concept of fate or attacks on astrology because they were seen as so intertwined. But as a result of that, um, you're right. It's not just Christianity, but other schools like Hermeticism and especially Gnosticism or different Gnostic schools that are talking about how to free yourself of fate and how to free yourself of the influence of the planets. Um, but also in the magical tradition, there's um, you know magical fragments of one little passage of somebody who is. Um, trying to get free of their fate and, and, and has some sort of magical ritual where they're explicitly asking to be freed of the influence of Hamarmene and freed of the fate that's indicated by their birth chart in this really famous fragment that survives. Um, then you have in like the Neoplatonic tradition, you have Porphyry and Iamblichus arguing about the idea that you can use astrology to identify your guardian spirit or guardian daimon. 
and Iamblichus criticizing Porphyry and saying that how how absurd it is the notion that you can use astrology to identify your guardian spirit and then to ask your guardian spirit to free you of fate when the purpose of the guardian spirit in the first place is supposed to be to make you live out your fate and to somehow enforce that or enforce the decrees of the planets. So there's this whole like rich philosophical and tradition and debates about different schools that are talking about how to get free of fate. Even as we talked about last month in the episode we did on Jewish views on fate, we have these discussions about whether um, either uh, Jewish peoples are exempt from fate as like an entire class of people due to their their beliefs, or whether um, Jewish people can become free of fate through certain acts of righteousness, for example, um, or whether the planets, whether the uh, stars or constellations, the zodiacal signs have any um, control over um, Israel. What was that famous saying again? Yeah, you have this famous uh, right that there's no mazal in Israel, right? Uh, uh, low mazal by Israel. There's no there's no mazal, uh, and there's you know like we talked about at length in that conversation, right? That and I think that's part of this, right? Because those conversations are happening around this time. Uh, they're happening exactly the same time. Uh, whereas we know that astrology, you know, there were Jews writing technical astrological manuals a couple of generations prior to that. Uh, and then there's this break in the Talmud, or at least the beginning of a debate in the Talmud about whether Mazal bore on uh, Israel uh, proper and could you escape fate through various kinds of things. And I think that conversation between Yamblichus and, and, Procl- and Porphyry is really interesting because then it introduces the idea that uh, and this is a Neoplatonic, and again, it has everything to do with the worldview these people accept, right? Where, whereas for the Aristotelian worldview, you have the prime mover, and it's just sort of, it's like a machine, and you can't do anything about it because that's just, you're the cog in the machine, and you you turn. Whereas in the, in the Neoplatonic world, yes, the one is emanating out, and eventually you're there, but also you have procession and then recession. And the idea is you can sort of absorb some of this spiritual energy and by manipulating it in certain kinds of ways using theurgy or magic or other kinds of things you can kind of rebroadcast it up and if you know your daimon you might be able to focus that energy back up in a way that manipulates how it comes back down to you and so there's a sort of procession recession model that's begins with Plotinus and you find it all the way down to the very all the way down to Proclus and so what's interesting again is how one's worldview affects how one views astrology, affects how one views one's interaction with fate. Because you might be able to do sacrifices to a, you know, burn incense and call down power into something to affect how your daimon works if you believe in a world where it's coming down and going back up. But if you accept uh, an Israelite worldview, well, no, the planets are either ruling over you or God ruling over you, and you better be good because if you're good, maybe God will directly help you as opposed to the, the planets ruling over you. And so I think what's for me so fascinating about this various uh, these various ideas about what's going on in astrology at this time period are the various kinds of ways that people are dealing with fate, either in the sense of having to accept it, how to live with it, how to alter it, how to escape it, and how astrology, um, at some level, depending on how you structured your world, allowed that or didn't. And how astrology, no matter what worldview you accepted, was the tool that you had to use. 
And I think that's what's interesting. Uh, and I think this is a point you make in your 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 really great book, is it like it doesn't really matter what it doesn't matter at some level what worldview, this was the tool. And the fact that that was a tool meant that in some level, everyone had to deal with it. And I find that whether you're a Stoic, a, a Jewish person, a Hermeticist, a Gnostic, a Neoplatinian, whatever, everyone had to, to deal with this, what was taken to be a fundamental truth about reality, and that is these celestial bodies are doing something, they matter, and it's our task to figure out how they move, why they move, the way that they move, and what that means for us. And I find that that's, that's the unifying thing. And I find it's really, one could teach an entire class. I've always made the joke that if I had my druthers, I would teach all of Greek philosophy backwards. I would start with the Trinity, like the, the, the Christian idea of the Trinity as it's found in the Nicene Creed and Athanasius. And then I'd work my way back from that idea, which is only possible using the entire apparatus of Greek philosophy, and work my way all the way back through the history of Greek philosophy, starting with the Trinity. I think one could do the same thing with Hellenistic astrology. You could take, you could learn astrology and then learn Greek, the, the Hellenistic Greek world back through it. And you would see all these different philosophical schools reflected in how they understood their relationship to the celestial bodies and, and to fate more generally. Yeah, definitely. And, and what a greater context once you do start with that understanding, it sheds on all of the different philosophical and religious de debates that are being had for centuries in the Greco-Roman world. And it, it's just hard sometimes, I think. I think it's hard for modern people because of um, culturally in the West, like what a dominant role those reactionary um, religions and philosophies have had on our culture in um, really putting free will at the very center of our, our Western cultural understanding of the world and about our lives and about what's important and, and what's valid in terms of choices. And the fact that the idea that we can make free will choices being like a fundamental, almost unspoken philosophical premise that was even heightened even more in like the modern times with ideas of, of humanism and, and things like that, and how core that is to our Western philosophy to go back to a first century BCE context where Stoicism and astrology are two of the prevailing and dominant philosophical schools, and to have just a, a, a worldview where the acceptance of fate and the idea that everything is predetermined and that your future is indicated by your birth chart was just a, a given that was taken by taken for granted by so many people. Um, even, I mean, it's interesting, even with the early, the birth of Christianity, early on, what astrology was actually being used to justify that Jesus was the Messiah through um, stories like the Star of Bethlehem in the Gospel of Matthew and the notion that there were these, this group of foreign astrologers from Mesopotamia who traveled to the birth of Jesus by following some sort of celestial portent that indicated that the Messiah had been born. And therefore, that story has this sort of political context in that it's, it's using astrology and saying that there was an astrological alignment that indicated that somebody really important was born at that time on that day, and by implication, therefore, had a special birth chart in the same way that other politicians during that time period, like some of the early Roman emperors, were like publishing their birth chart because they thought that it showed that they would accomplish great things and it justified their their reign. Um, you sort of get a similar thing there uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's interesting how astrology initially is being used as something 
to justify uh, the new religion, justify Christianity, and then later becomes something that it's explicitly pushing against or fighting against for theological reasons. Yeah, and it's always interesting to me the double-edged sword of astrology because if it can if it can point out that your birth chart indicates you're destined to great things, it might be able to figure out when you're going to die. And it's interesting that the I mean, I mean, the Roman emperors were really happy with uh, with when the story was good, and when they would cast you know charts about what might happen to them in a battle or they, when they might die, they were like, all right, round them all up and kick them all out. And so they, they were more than happy to expel them all when it, when the story wasn't. Uh, uh, when the story wasn't so good. And also it's interesting, ditto with the birth chart of Jesus, that that was one of the big capital crimes you see uh, people being punished for in the Middle Ages, uh, astrologers trying to cast birth charts for Jesus. Uh, Cecco Descoli, I think, was one of these medieval people that attempted to do this and got in a great bit of trouble uh, trying to sort out exactly when Jesus was born through astrology, because there was something about the idea that on the one hand, of course, there were the heavens aligned as a sign that something was very important, but if it's a case that natal astrology is true and that Jesus was born under a certain birth chart, then he was destined to do what he did, and that that that's a mess. That's a theological mess because obviously God shouldn't be destined to do stuff. Yeah, it's a funny fundamental um, incompatibility that's burst, built into Western Christianity, which is on the one hand this you know almost stoic belief that jo Jesus was born with this auspicious astrological alignment that indicated he would. That the Son of God had just been born, basically, that the Messiah had been born and, and therefore justified that and what would happen and justified the new religion. But then on the other hand, the especially growing later theological emphasis on free will as being a, a really important component of Christianity that wasn't just a minor thing, but is actually one of the core components that made it really stand out from some of the other philosophical and religious schools of that time period. Um, yeah, and you mentioned like the length of life. That was one of the um, great preoccupations that the astrologers had, and in many, very early in many of their textbooks, they had a specific technique that was outlined in one of the early foundational texts, probably in the first century BCE, that was attributed to um, Petasiris. Um, and this technique for determining the length of life was not just a preoccupation of the astrologers. Uh, because they they gave the rationale that you shouldn't predict events like great events for somebody who will not live long enough to see them was like the cr classic rationale that Ptolemy mentions and he alludes to or or I think attributes this to Petasiris from the source text that he got this technique from and that most of the astrologers got this technique from but it's interesting how that technique became sort of the bane of many of the emperors during that time period when the astrologers were running around predicting when different emperors would die, and that was not something they were happy about, and that was one of the biggest times when political um, backlash would happen against astrology, and you would see it getting banned or see astrologers getting kicked out of Rome was when predictions like that were being made. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Again, like it's one of these things where, same with magic, uh, many people in power are happy to have magicians on their employ. Uh, as long as there's no suspicion at all, they're not using that that stuff against them. And so it's interesting that this is always a one is always a danger if you're a court astrologer or a court uh, a court magician that this can always cut against you in lots of ways. Yeah, and and magic's really important, and there's that's something that's very underexplored. It's hard to explore because there's not a lot that survives from the Hellenistic tradition, but there's some sort of tie-in there with the Egyptian tradition and some of the earlier Egyptian practices, as well as 
some of the Mesopotamian practices, which were propitiation rituals, because in the older Mesopotamian tradition from like let's say the 7th century BCE, there were notions that the planets and the stars acted as heavenly writing indicating the will of the gods and things that they were expressing to humankind about the present or the future, but they didn't view that as it wasn't within a deterministic or stoic context because they viewed some of those indications as being negotiable and that you could use certain rituals or sort of like magical practices in order to avert the things that were indicated, the decrees that were indicated by the stars. And we see some survival of that in the magical tradition um, in the Hellenistic period and then especially in the medieval period through the use of things like talismans and amulets where you could um, pick like an astrological moment that was auspicious uh, when a certain planet was prominent in the sky and then create or consecrate like a talisman or, or an object. Uh, that would capture the the astrological or the magical astrological energies of that moment into an object that you could then carry around with you in order to um, sort of capture the energy of that moment and keep it with you in order to offset and influence your fate from that point forward. Uh, so some of those magical traditions, even in their survival into the medieval period through books like the Picatrix, are an interesting, again, alternative legacy of trying to use astrology not to accept your fate, but instead using that knowledge in order to free yourself from fate by learning how to manipulate um, the the planetary energies or what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, of course, the most famous example of that is, is Alkindi's on the Stellar Rays, where um, you know, um, on the Stellar Rays is often given the subtitle in the Middle Ages, uh, Theory of Magic. Because on the, the first part of the Stellar Rays is his sort of Neoplatonic vision of how the the stars radiate various kinds of causation and how one can use images to capture them. I think of them like uh, astral batteries, where if there's a certain conjunction with a certain kind of uh, energy, you can capture that energy and then deploy it later into doing things. And you can amplify or deamplify those energies using things like sacrifices and uh, incense and things like that. And <clears throat> Alkindi's on the Stellar Rays basically became one of the principal textbooks for what we consider astrological magic along with Picatrix into the the Middle Ages, which was used. Uh, And again, this is also what's also interesting is the survival of the idea that the planets are living creatures, that they're entities that are alive. We see that going back into the Hellenistic period as well. And because these entities are alive, they can be manipulated. And you see this idea developing in the the traditions of uh, astrological or astral necromancy where these intelligences, these beings, not only are they out there, but by using various kinds of magical systems, one can manipulate them and actually call them, call their power down to do all kinds of various things. And uh, this kind of astral necromancy was a very popular form of magic uh, into the Middle Ages, uh, uh, whether you have the uh, commentaries of Hortolanus and other kinds of people on these astrological textbooks, which are very innocuous on their own. They're just astrological textbooks. But what would, what would end up happening is people like Michael Scott or, or Hortolanus or Cecco Dascoli would write these um, uh, necromantic versions of them where not only are they describing how, how not only are they describing how the planets work, but also describing what the planets are, these living beings, and how to manipulate them. And at that point, you cross the line into 
criminality and you could be executed and, and many people were some people were executed for this kind of, of thing as well and we see that idea of the planets being living beings going back i think even to plato and and uh, his successors so it's just interesting i think the what's the right word the vicissitudes uh, to think about fate again that astrology in the hellenistic world has has left us in the western world all these different tendrils all these different uh, traditions all these different ways of relating to the celestial world and it's my experience and i, and I wonder if it's yours um, that those kinds of questions are only getting more popular that questions about astrology questions about our relationship to the celestial world at some level are are, are actually only increasing in popularity uh, over the course of the past 20 years uh, both at the academic level thank thank goodness but also at the at practical level, at the doing of astrology, and it seems like um, this is kind of a, a period of, of renaissance for both the doing of astrology, but also for the historical um, re-understanding of all of this stuff, where many of these texts are just now being published for the first time in, in hundreds of years. Do you Is that your sense of it as well, that we're living in a kind of uh, astrological renaissance of a certain kind? Yeah, and, and um, there's been a huge resurgence of astrology recently in the past decade, and also more broadly in the 20th century, and that resurgence in the 60s and 70s, as well as the broader, which I, I tried to document a little of, uh, resurgence of interest, academic interest in astrology over the past century, and, and the important role that's played in our understanding by recovering some of these texts that survived in libraries and private collections and editing and printing them which you know some of these many of these texts were just not accessible and scholars did not have the ability to read them until recently and so that's one of the reasons why academic interest in astrology has grown is just the availability of uh, being able to study some of the original prim primary source texts so that whole modern component is definitely something I'm interested in talking about, but I want to bring it back really quickly to something. Since we started talking about the magical tradition and talismans, one other development we need to talk about also is the um, practice of electional astrology, which was a major, it was basically like the third branch of astrology that developed at some point. And the premise of that, um, there may have been earlier versions of it in the Mesopotamian tradition. Um, but the premise, but it definitely became a third full-fledged branch that entire books of astrology were dedicated to by the first century CE, such as um, the first major one that survives is Dorotheus of Sidon. Uh, book five of his text deals entirely with um, what the Greek astrologers called it inceptional astrology, or um, what later medieval astrologers referred to as electional astrology, based on the premise that if the alignment of the planets indicates what's going to happen in the future, um, or it indicates what's happening right now in the present or what has happened in the past, then by extension, you should be able to um, choose certain days to act that are going to be more auspicious for, for having a positive outcome. That basically, if the alignment of the planets at the moment that something begins indicates its outcome, which was the fundamental premise of astrology in the Hellenistic period onwards, then one of the extensions of that is that by choosing um, one moment to act instead of another, you can actually control or manipulate the outcome. And this led to the whole branch of electional astrology, where astrologers would give you rules for what types of planetary alignments would indicate different types of outcomes. 
and especially which types of alignments would indicate more favorable outcomes if you're trying to choose a, a desired outcome. Like for example, for starting a journey or for getting married and having a successful um, you know, marriage between two, two partners. Um, and entire things were dedicated to that. So that becomes a very important practice of astrology where it's interesting because there's some overlap with the philosophical tradition where around the same time period that you have that emerging, that practice of electional astrology, you also have some of the Platonic authors and especially the Neoplatonic authors articulating this, um, this conditional view of fate which some of the modern scholars have really like wrestled with and wondered how this makes any sense and have kind of criticized as being not very consistent. But this notion that um, individuals have the ability to choose things freely, but once they make a choice to act, once they make the choice, the outcome is somehow determined or is predetermined at that point. Um, there's some sort of interplay there between either the Neoplatonic philosophical tradition influencing the astrological tradition with its approach to electional astrology, which is essentially the same thing. Or alternatively, I tend to think is probably more likely to some extent is the astrological tradition actually influencing the Platonic philosophical tradition because the practice of electional astrology is a very practical application of that fundamental notion that somehow you have freedom to act and to choose to act at one moment rather than another. But that once you do make that choice and you initiate or commence the inception of something, using the Greek word katarki, which is the the term that was used to refer to this branch of astrology called katarkic or inceptional astrology, that once you make that choice, the outcome is then determined of what will happen in the future. Um, and it's funny because you see, again, just going back to the Christian and the philosophical tradition, that. Um, Saint Augustine, for example, criticizes this very practice at one point. And I, I cite this passage in my book where he says, Now, who could tolerate the assumption that in choosing lucky days, people manufacture new destiny, destinies by their own acts? Can a man by the choice of a day change the destiny already decreed for him? And, you know, in this translation, it's using terms like destiny, but I'm sure. The term used had more to do with fate and that concept of fate and being able to choose your fate by acting at one moment rather than another. Yeah, then it's this this criticism. Um, there's there's some technical stuff that I, I thought to get into earlier on, but then I was like, do I really want to get into Chrysippus's propositional logic about counterfact future counterfactuals? And I thought, no. <laughs> um, but but that's also that's a big part of uh, Chrysippus, right? Because Chrysippus thinks that there is a degree of freedom uh, because of internal co-fatedness that um, because of the way propositional logic works, that there may be kind of future counterfactuals that aren't determined at, at a, a specific point, but get determined by a, at, at, they get determined at a specific point, but they weren't determined to be at that point. And what ends up happening is I think it's Cicero really thinks that that's, this is just insane. He's like, you're just kicking the can down the road uh, because if you chose to do something at one point, what determined you to make that choice? It's like it, it, you can't turn determination on and off willy-nilly. Of course, there's all kinds of philosophical ways that I think people tried to solve that, and I think one could bring to bear Chrysippus as one way of solving that. But again, to me, what's interesting about that from the philosophical point of view is just how the astro practical astrologers just don't seem to care about the logical problem because they go happily on doing electional astrology. I think my 
my two favorite examples are the founding of Baghdad uh, being uh, being done by um, uh, Mashallah and those guys. But also when you read John Dee's diaries, uh, there are these cryptic hieroglyphs that if you look through his, his personal diary, they're not quite clear what these hieroglyphs mean. And then you compare it to his astrological diaries and you begin to clearly see what they are. They're, they're when his wife is menstruating and when they're having sex. And D is trying to plan kids based on uh, these things. And it's really interesting trying to, uh, some astrologer friends of mine trying to look at the date in which they're having sex, trying to conceive a kid, and then looking at the astrological configuration at that time. And D's very particular about it, as you might imagine. And they're trying to see what was he going for? Like, what was he selecting for? And of course, they found things that they think that they was, he was trying to influence the life of these children. Um, unfortunately, I think all of them, but Arthur D. died. But um, I don't know if he did a good job. But uh, yeah, I always this interesting that that there are these high level philosophical debates about can one do, can one logically do electional astrology? And then, of course, it seems that the astrologers are happy to keep doing it regardless of what the philosophers think works given uh, uh, the logical necessity of future counterfactuals. Yeah, I mean, one of the issues we have is, um, you know, only a very small selection of astrological texts survive. And for the most part, we don't have a lot of texts that serve. What we have is technical manuals of how to do astrology because those are the things that the astrologers themselves copied over and those are the things that the scribes copied over for centuries that survived you know all the way through until the renaissance or into modern times so that scholars could actually put those texts together edit them and translate them um, so what we have mainly is the practical text of how to do astrology but i think we're missing a lot of texts about what was the philosophical conceptualization of astrology by some of these different astrologers we Instead, only have these brief digressions sometimes by astrologers like Valens and that quote on fate that I had earlier that was just this digression that he makes at one point in the middle of an otherwise largely technical text where he's showing birth charts and, and teaching his students because he actually ran a school for astrology in Alexandria in the second century and he was trying to instruct his students how to interpret birth charts and make predictions based on his often sometimes textual analysis of the earlier tradition, but also empirical analysis of so he says this is this is this technique that worked for me it's a really powerful technique i'm passing on to you here's this other technique i'm going to outline it but i don't like it i don't think it's that effective or here's this technique but i think you should do it this way there's a very like empirical component to that um you know but circling back around you mentioned you know there's high level astrology astrology is always operating something i realized lately more and more astrology is always operating in society at all levels of society and there's like high level astrology that's always being done for things like kings and emperors and presidents um, there's middle level astrology and there's always low level astrology that's being practiced on the street uh, you know there's these stories about street level astrologers in like the medieval period who would draw charts in sand uh, for you know like a few few pennies or something like that um, and you mentioned the use of the the caliph at the time in Baghdad in the eighth century, who got together a group of astrologers and said, "We're going to move the capital uh, of the newly emergent Islamic Empire to this new city 
pick me an auspicious electional chart for the founding of this new city, which the astrologers did. And we have that chart actually survives, and we know the date of the founding of Baghdad because Al Biruni preserves that chart for us that the astrologers, uh, Masha Allah, and another group picked at that time. But even centuries later, you know, in the 19, 1980s, that was one of the big controversies that happened late in the Reagan administration. Was it turned out that they were employing uh, an astrologer named Joan Quigley, and her primary job was like astrologers from the Hellenistic or medieval period was to pick was to use electional astrology to pick auspicious dates to start different ventures and undertakings, or basically to choose. Uh, lucky or auspicious, astrologically auspicious dates to initiate certain actions, such as the launching of his presidential campaigns or um, signing a treaty with Russia, one of the nuclear ballistic missile treaties signed with Russia. Quigley said that she was in charge of picking the date for that in order to ensure a positive outcome, and many other things that she documented at one point once it became public knowledge that they were working with an astrologer. So my my point with that is just we always have like um, astrology operating at all these different levels in society, and this sometimes this stratification of it. Yeah, and I think that's a, a certainly true both of uh, it's certainly true of magic as well, where magic is always operating uh, in a spectrum at every register of society, and also that we have in a for instance from the Hellenistic world we have the Greek magical papyri, which are a, a huge amount of uh, ma- forms of magic ranging from um, from lots of different levels of society. What we don't have from the same time period are many technical manuals about how exactly magic was supposed to work, with the exception at some level of people like Yamblichus and the Egyptian Mysteries gives us some clue about how they he thought ma- may- maybe magic worked and things like that. But yeah, the, the, the technical manuals, the technical doing of magic, we have lots of evidence for how exactly it was supposed to have worked. Um, there are very few philosophical documents describing this is how exactly it's supposed to this is the causal mechanism this is why it works and i think that's interesting that at least on the astrological front we do have a good bit of philosophical data about how they thought it worked at least in the the rough philosophical sense but it's interesting that the 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 philosophical side of things and this is true of the hermetica as well right that we have a lot of technical hermetica that describe astrology and alchemy. We have a lot of philosophical hermetica that describe the worldview of some of the people writing some of that stuff, but rarely do we have someone writing both at the same time. Right. Yeah. And it's like, I don't think it's because that didn't exist, um, you know, in the ancient world, because occasionally we do have high level um, scientists and philosophers like Claudius Ptolemy who. You know, are explicitly not just trying to write practical texts, but are are also writing very detailed uh, philosophical, uh, def- not just defenses, but justifications for and providing a philosophical outlook for what they're doing. And we sometimes see practicing astrologers like Valens, whose manual is like ninety five percent practical knowledge, but we do occasionally see him making digressions and. Um, these sort of inklings of what the what the broader philosophy is. It's just that that some of the philosophical stuff was not the stuff that got copied over by scribes for the most part because it wasn't as important as the actual technical doing of astrology. And that's really always what the astrologers themselves are the most interested in passing on because it has you know practical value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wonder to what degree the 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 
technical versus logos distinction that which which played a big deal in especially the attic world where technical arts were looked down upon where as opposed of more philosophical arts were looked highly high more highly at i wonder if that was also beginning to break down in the hellenistic world um and it's interesting that not just astrological and magical manuals survive i think one of my favorite genres of uh, hellenistic literature are technical manuals translated into verse where we get uh, technical manuals on things like beekeeping um, where the people would write these manuals, but they would put them into verse and they preserve. We, we, we have, we know a lot about Hellenistic beekeeping practices, um, which is interesting because these manuals survive for, you know, for, for various reasons. Um, so yeah, I wonder what might, what might be the reasons why some of these, uh, didn't survive. Cause I'm trying to think of any other magical philosophical, magical texts from that time period that were written that are, that we know were written, but are lost. Uh, I can, none of them are jumping to my mind, but it's amazing also how much more we know about what existed of philosophical literature that was lost, but also of astrological literature that we know the the list of all these books that existed, and we now know that they're they're no longer extant, which is a great pity, of course. Yeah, well, that's one of the issues. Is there's a, a parallel with astrology with Hellenistic astrology um, in that what we mainly have is some later. Uh, third and fourth and fifth generation astrological texts from the first and second and third centuries CE, which are all drawing on an earlier connection, a collection of foundational source texts from the first or second centuries BCE. But for the most part, we've lost all of the foundational source texts from the first and second centuries BCE. We just see references and snippets and very occasionally like excerpts from some of them and later authors like Valens. So, where he'll cite this text attributed to Nechepso or to Petasiris or to Hermes Trismegistus um, <clears throat> or Asclepius. And these were actual, these weren't just like mythological names that were being thrown around, but instead it seems like these were early foundational texts that were ascribed these names of legendary sages and philosophers and kings from the past in order to. Perhaps give them greater social credit, or or to show some sort of cultural indebtedness. We don't really know. There's lots of debates about why those texts were written with pseudonyms, um, but all we know is just that we're missing a bunch of the foundational texts. In the same way that with Stoicism, we're missing most of the early foundational texts from Chrysippus or Zeno, but we know that those existed because of the later references and snippets of them in authors from the first and second and third centuries CE. No, that's right. I mean, that's people forget that uh, Plato. We have Plato's dialogues, but we have none of Plato's discourses. They're all lost. Right. Uh, ditto with Aristotle. We have Plato's discourses, but none of his dialogues. They're all and, gone. And, it, and that's crazy with Aristotle. The notion that what we have is like his what his private notes. It's not even have, his public. Yeah, stuff. we have some. We have lecture notes. We have students' notes. We have some of the stuff he probably wrote down. Uh, mm -hmm. We have fragments of things like the poetics that aren't complete. Yeah, it's a mess. And people also take for granted that uh, the, everything we have of Aristotle survived in one collection of manuscripts. Right. One. It, it, it was found in a basement in Rome. It could have easily gotten flooded and that was it. And Aristotle would be someone we, we know by name and nothing would have survived. Yeah. So it's it's just, I mean, when you go, if you, I always tell people that if you read Diogenes Laertius, the biography or gossiper about the philosophers really uh, he's to be trusted as far as you can throw him typically but one of the things that he leaves us that's invaluable is lists of everything that people wrote and uh if you want a a laundry list of tragedy uh just read diogenes's Laer diogenes laertius's list uh 
And uh, again, 705 books Tricipus wrote, and not a single one survived. Yeah. Um, we're lucky to have anything at all, frankly. Um, yeah. And, so, And also with astrology, too, and magic, uh, considering that the hostility that astrology faced by uh, the rise of Christian hegemony, that any of that stuff survives. It's just, yeah. Um, it's it's just it's we're very lucky. And, and I want to mention a few things in relation to that. One, um, you mentioned verse texts, and it's actually really interesting that a, a bunch of the Hellenistic texts that survive, the astrological texts, mm-hmm. are written in verse, right? Uh, even though they're they're technical or instructional manuals. And one of the reasons for that is that it's. A lot easier to remember and to pass down a text that's written in verse um, because it uh, has a sort of internal consistency where you know um, what rhymes and what the words should be in order to fill out um, the rest of like the stanza. And it's also a good mnemonic device to remember the instructional rules by having like a catchy tune that you can actually remember that's written in the form of a poem rather than just a list of rules where. Different words or letters or or entire paragraphs could drop out, and you have no idea that something's missing. So, you know the the text of Dorotheus of Sidon, which was hugely influential, written in Greek in the first century, uh, survives partially in in Greek and partially in Arabic or Persian translations, um, and was so influential in its five books, partially because it was written in verse. Or um, Manetho was another astrologer who uh, may have written the early part of his text in the second century, and we actually know roughly the date of it because he included his birth chart, which is dated to one of the things that's cool about astrology from a historical perspective is that when an author mentions a birth chart, they'll give a, a, a position of planets that you can actually look up in an ephemeris or in a book of planetary tables for like the first few centuries and you can look and see when the planets would be in that combination and that will give you a precise date of when that birth chart dates to and then all of a sudden you know when that author was born so manetho for example being born i think it was in may of 80 80 ce or something like that or Vedius valens we think he used his birth chart a bunch of times david pingree the modern editor of that text Notes that there's this one chart that keeps being used over and over again by Vadius Valens that he seems to know an awful lot of information about this person's life, including this person's like conception date and when this person was involved in like a shipwreck and all sorts of different things like that. And um, if it actually is Valens and his birth chart, then we know that he was born in like February of 120 CE, and that roughly lines up with. His known timeline for other reasons. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to mention that and mentioned other texts, a number of other texts that were written in verse, like Maximus or Manilius, the most famous of the Latin authors. And weirdly, one of the earliest astrological texts that survives is Manilius, which was written in Latin sometime in probably the early first century CE um, during the late reign of Augustus or early reign of Tiberius, probably. And again, that's another verse text where Manilius was kind of taking some technical knowledge and showing off by putting it into verse and showing how clever he was by taking this really dense technical information but being able to put it forward in a aesthetically pleasing poetic form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Virgil's famous for this too, right? His bucolics basically is how to be a farmer in verse, uh, which was a, such a strange um, 
in many ways it seems so strange, but now it's a classic of Western literature uh, to take these technical things and to put them into Greek. Uh, be a fun project to do that, to take a, uh, I don't know, the the uh, warranty for this camera and translate it into meter and maybe it'll survive for 2,000 years. Um, <laughs> the the operating manual. <laughs> I actually had a in a lecture recently, there was like a passage from Dorotheus that was in verse originally where we have like a fragment of the original Greek text and I um, it was translated into prose basically by um, a modern translator, Levant Laszlo, who's working on like a Patreon project where he's like translating Greek astrological texts into English and you can support that translation project through his Patreon while he's working on his PhD uh, dissertation, which he's hoping to complete on ancient astrology later this year. But um, I took that passage that Levanta translated into um, prose and I tried to like Retranslate it into something that rhymed and sounded a little bit more like verse, like Dorotheus would have sounded originally. And it was kind of a fun project to do. I'm trying to find that really quickly. Um, I don't know if you've seen other modern things like that. I'm trying to think of people who've done. I mean, people obviously have tried translating, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey and and things that are rhyming. Um, I, the I think that the example that jumps to my mind is people who've translated. Dante's Divine Comedy into Terza Rima, which just seems like a nightmare to do into English. Uh, it seems, you know, it, Italian sort of naturally flows into that way, but trying to write the copy the rhyme structure of Italian into English just seems like a Herculean task, but people have done it. Um, another genre that's also interesting in that way with uh, taking uh, verse is taking, um, there's a gospel story where someone took parts of uh, uh, Virgil rearranged lines of Virgil to retell the gospel story. This was apparently a genre of literature where you would take poems, rearrange them, tell a different story, which, uh, which I just, I know it's, again, just, it's a super interesting kind of world, um, literarily and um, faded and otherwise. So, Yeah, um, here's a little, uh, here's that passage I was able to find. So this is like an attempt, but uh, it's pretty rough, but the original Dorotheus might have sounded like this, where it says, in a, in a three-sided aspect, the malefics stand corrected. A star is no longer spiteful once it is in a beneficial place that is delightful, and neither is the place base when it welcomes an honest face. So all of that's like transmitting very specific technical information, like the first line basically means a three-sided aspect is a uh, a trine or a triangle aspect, which is the geometrical aspect that has three sides. And it says when a the malefics stand corrected, the malefics are improved. The two malefics, of course, are Mars and Saturn, and they're thought to have their negative indications in astrology blunted or to be not as negative when they're configured according to this triangular geometrical aspect. Uh, or other things just to go on. We don't have to get too much into the technical thing, but just to give people an idea of how some of that technical information was sometimes transmitted in verse. Um, yeah, and, and that the scribes, one of the reasons why some of this survives is because the scribes were very much interested in transmitting uh, and, and preserving some of that technical information because it was thought to have practical value, not just in interpreting birth charts, but also in other applications such as natal astrology. Or one thing we might mention that eventually emerged late in the 
Hellenistic tradition at some point and became much more dominant in the medieval period was what eventually became the fourth branch of astrology, which is known as interrogational astrology or uh, horary astrology questions. And sometimes that's just shortened to, in modern times, horary astrology, where the astrologer would cast a chart for um, the moment that a client approached them and asked a single important pressing question under the premise that if they cast a chart for the exact moment of that exchange, the, the chart would reflect not just what the person was asking about, what they were inquiring about, but also it would indicate something about the outcome of those thoughts or what would happen with that, um, that, that situation in the future. And this became a very popular practice in the medieval period, and some of our first major surviving textbooks on it survive from the 8th century from astrologers like Masha'Allah, who is that astrologer who uh, was involved in casting the electional chart for Baghdad. Um, but then it became a major practice, but also a practice that was sometimes subject to criticism because by that point we had a distinction between, especially in Europe, between uh, what was called natural astrology, which was the type of astrology that was seen as permissible, especially to the Christian church, which is the type of causal astrology that just relates to things in nature and the influence of planetary bodies on nature and on the body that was seen as okay because it was just an extension of nature versus um, this other distinction of so-called judicial astrology where the astrologers are making judgments about charts and they're using astrology as a type of divination in a way that was seen as not natural or not part of the natural world. And practices such as horary astrology were ones that were really hard to justify in a naturalistic causal context because you're just casting a chart for like the moment of a question uh, under the premise that that will indicate the outcome of the question, and that's much more obviously like a type of or, or tied into some sort of divination. And divination at that point was something that the uh, Christian Church was more against. Right, and it's interesting again linking this back to the this conversation. Right, we see that this fourth branch of astrology kind of beginning with Dorotheus, at least in some fragments maybe, but then we see it certainly merging mature in mashallah in a way that he didn't invent it. It, it. He's clearly inheriting this tradition from the Hellenistic world at some level. And again, it just shows you what we've lost, right? That this probably existed in Dorotheus or maybe even before, maybe even goes back to maybe even earlier than that. And yet, it's get, everything gets so murky because those, you know, those that the the fragments get very corrupted, and and then all of a sudden we see it in Mashallah, and you're like, did he invent? No, he didn't invent this. This is something he's inheriting, and and it went on to survive to great uh, to great fame and great criticism in the in the Christian world. So again, it's just one of those places where um, what we have and what was, uh, you know, it's uh, you know you've seen the joke of the archaeologist, right, where they pick up one piece of a column. And it shows the thought bubble coming off from the uh, the archaeologist, and then they, it's like a giant thought bubble of all of like a city, right? They're you know, there's the, all they get is the fragment of the column, and then they can see the entire city. Uh, what we what we so what we have that survives are often these just tiny fragments of things, and uh, we are we have the task of having to, or we have the task of trying to reconstruct um, some of this incredibly fascinating world that was Hellenistic astrology and the world that, in many ways, gave birth to the astrologies that have come to exist um, both in the Middle Ages and, and in our world. So it's uh, this has been a really great conversation, Chris. Uh, any, Hold any, on, final, any, 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 final, any final ideas? 
Yeah, before we wrap up that segment on horror, I just want to mention because that was one of my first real um, like research papers on astrology in college that I got really into was trying to reconstruct the origins of horary astrology and figure out what happened with that gap where, uh, like you said, it's like there's just little references to it in Dorotheus in the first century CE, and then all of a sudden you have full textbooks on this entire branch of astrology by the time of Masha'Allah in the eighth century, and. Um, you know, in Dorotheus, it's initially just this th- almost like a couple of throwaway lines where it's seen as a secondary or tertiary um, moment of importance that you could ask a question or you could cast a, an astrological chart for a moment of a, an inception that you can then cast a chart for to determine the outcome of that inception in the future. But the primary one initially is the moment that the event happens. So Dorotheus says, you know, if you want to learn about the future of something, cast a chart for the moment that the event began, and then interpret that, and you can determine the outcome. But then he says, if you don't know when that thing happened and when it began, then cast a chart for when the client first learned about that event or that moment, and that chart will tell you the outcome. And then he says, if you don't know that moment, if the client doesn't remember what time or day it was when they learned of the event, then cast the chart for the moment that the client asks you or comes to inquire to you about the future, and then that chart will tell you about the outcome. So it's like very—it's just a couple of lines in Dorotheus that refer to that in the first century, but then eventually that grows and becomes this whole fourth branch of the tradition that became very popular and very prominent by the time of the eighth century. But it's just again, one of those examples I wanted to mention, just because astrology is something that's always constantly growing and changing. It's not a fixed singular thing that's just static, but it's something that new things are being added to and there's new applications and new modifications of um, constantly in different eras. And astrology go- also goes through these periods of um, you know being very popular during different times and then other times falling out of popularity or being a fad for a little bit. For a century or two or three centuries, but then being suppressed at different points for for different reasons, and then eventually coming back, and so on and so forth. Um, so, and it's a very long history. It's just had many different variants and variations and forms, but it's something that's been with us in Western society, especially for for a very long time now. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important to study, uh, because it's been a major part of culture and society for such a long time. And it's had such an important influence in ways that are sometimes we don't realize until we really start to look into it and realize um, just how important it's been. No, I completely agree. And I think our conversation tonight shows that um, when we think of of perhaps philosophy being rational or whatever, and astrology being may perhaps being more mystical, maybe that's a pe- that's a misconception, but I think a popular misconception. Where we can see where in for hundreds and hundreds of years, philosophy and and astrology set and science and everything else set side by side, um, not always agreeing about how everything worked, but all agreeing that this had to be worked out. And I find that to be the interesting thing that they couldn't quite agree about how it worked, but they could all agree that it had to be worked out. And you're absolutely right to say that uh, a history of, of, of Western thought, of Western science, a history of 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 the way Western people, whatever Western is, how they related to the heavens and related to fate, 
if if you're going to have a history of that and leave out astrology, you, you basically leave out ninety percent of the conversation. It wouldn't be a very good history uh, at yeah. all. And you you mentioned um, you know science and philosophy or the, the dichotomy between science and philosophy or science and religion, and and really astrology is important because it is one of those weird subjects that straddles the line between both between science and philosophy or between science and religion. And that's one of the reasons why it's kind of hard sometimes I think for modern people to look at it historically where we have such a clear distinction between the two at this point in time um, because it really was not distinguished as much or there was much more overlap or uh, ways in which astrology was in both camps in the ancient world, especially with some of the ancient astrologers like you know Ptolemy, who's a great scientist and empiricist with works like um, you know his astronomical works, but then also he was doing things with astrology at the same time. And some of his work, some of the work with astrology, was also in authors like Vedius Valens, who used example charts. Was just as empirical as some of the scientific texts, at least to them, because they, you know, thought that they were trying different astrological techniques out and testing them out and trying to figure out what worked and what didn't. And sometimes that practical focus was, you know, paramount to them much more than the philosophical focus of of how does this work or why does this work, um, because it was just a technology to them that could tell you things about the future. And you know, if if anybody. Believed that that was true, like truly believed that astrology was a valid phenomenon and that it could tell you anything about the future, then you can kind of understand why so many people for centuries would have dedicated their lives to it and expended a great deal of energy trying to figure it out, how to make it work and how to practice it. And, you know, that's, that's the history of astrology. No, absolutely. And again, I think that, um, again, this relationship of uh, the future and is it faded and is it is it not faded to what degree is it faded and to what degree can we know uh, that's going to remain a perennially interesting question both scientifically as we try to predict the future using whatever scientific tools we have um, but also philosophically about the nature of free will the nature of compatibilism the nature of determinism um, those none of those questions are going anywhere and insofar as none of those questions are going anywhere I think astrology is always going to be um, Will long be part of that, um, of will long be part of that conversation. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't want to know not just the future but their future? Uh, it's one of the most like tantalizing ideas and tantalizing pieces of technology to the extent that astrology, if it could say anything about the future, just becomes not just a philosophical like question for for people living in like ivory towers but it becomes a very practical level of practical question or practical technology of if you can know the future um, what can you do with that information and, and there's a lot of different ways that different people have have applied that or have tried to use that information for you know either to improve their lives or for self gain or or what have you just the notion that they could somehow figure out what was going to happen in the future, which is one of the greatest, you know, questions. I think that's always that humanity's always wrestled with in some form or another. I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. Well, speaking of the future, I think a future conversation I'd love to I love to have with you is um, the the sort of also we've dealt with some of the philosophical issues around astrology, but also thinking through some of the philosophical challenges. Uh, to astrology, which we, which touched on a bit tonight, but it'd be uh, great to have you back on again uh, for more of a. In the same way that philosophy is also 
uh, had challenges to magic. It's also had challenges to astrology and, and thinking through some of those challenges also, again, reveals some of the really interesting things about both of them and how they operated and how they were practiced and how they continue to be practiced. So maybe that will be a conversation for, uh, for a, for a future, for a future time. Um, but I think that requires both of us to wear different hats and, and these conversations are already heady enough as it is. It's amazing how much time we, we get through. Yeah, there's two. I'm surprised at how much we cover this. Amazing, and I really enjoyed this. So thank you for for doing this with me tonight. Um, yeah, there's two issues. One of them I've tried to steer away from talking too much about the practice of contemporary astrology and contemporary views of astrology in this conversation. Um, so that's certainly something we could talk about at some point in the future in a separate discussion, which is how astrologers these days deal with and conceptualize some of these issues and what the practice of astrology looks like in the 21st century. As opposed to uh, in the first century and in Greco-Roman times, as we've been talking about here in this episode, and then a, a separate question or a separate topic we might do at some point is um, that I've I've always I've wanted to do and I haven't had a good person to do it with, but I think you might be the guy is uh, addressing some of the skeptical critiques and attacks on astrology uh, in the ancient world, especially. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned one passage from Saint Augustine, for example, which is one of the great skeptical critiques of astrology because he was actually familiar with it and claimed to be a former astrologer uh, or to have dabbled in astrology earlier in his life and his youth before he converted to Christianity. Uh, but also bringing in some other skeptics who wrote pen critiques of astrology, like Cicero or you know the actual skeptics Sextus Empiricus or, or others like that. That might be a fun episode to do at some point. Yeah, I think it'd be great. Yeah, bringing in Sextus Empiricus and um, some of the academic skeptics, and but also you know people like Pico who wrote a uh, uh, an attack on astrology, and even some of the modern ones. I think from people like Thomas Kuhn and uh, Karl Popper, and they're they're more modern. You know, um, they're more modern attacks, not on uh, astrology per se, but thinking through this demarcation problem. Right, what is a science and what is not a science? How do we legitimately get knowledge and how do we not? And I find that question around the demarcation problem interesting, but also questions around these historical criticisms, the twin arguments and stuff like that. So yeah, I would love to have uh, those conversations would be would be great. I don't, I yeah, I'm always the kind of person who I don't want to, you know, I don't want to like, I want to go on someone's show or have a conversation that's just adversarial because I find those conversations to be just often not terribly enlightening. But I think that having a, a conversation around what those critiques look like, how did people answer them, um, you know, how do people in the modern world deal with them, I, I find that interesting. Just because there's something about astrology that seems to raise the hackles of so many mostly straight white dudes that I've often find this incredible like emotional response that people have you know, demographically have to astrology, and because they hate the fact that it's pseudoscience or irrational or whatever, and I'm like. You're being pretty irrational. This is a really strange. It's a it's a strange kind of response because you know how rational you're being. Um, so yeah, I, I think the psychology of that is really fascinating. The historical reality of that's fascinating, and also these these uh, philosophical challenges through history that uh, astrology has weathered incredibly well. Um, I'd just be curious. Yeah, it'd be, cur it'd be interesting and fun to talk through them. Uh, given your enormous expertise, uh, both on the, pra the, the practice, of practice of astrology now, the astrological community now, but also your deep knowledge of the history of uh, both practice and theory, that'd be a great conversation. 
Yeah, definitely. And also because there's always been historically uh, an exchange, it's been a dialogue between astrologers and skeptics and skeptics and astrologers. And it's interesting sometimes historically to see how the practice of astrology reacts to or how astrologers respond to and react to skeptical critiques of astrology, um, like some of the um, modern philosophical uh, modern academics have pointed out how some portions of like the very first um, book of Ptolemy's text where he's introducing and outlining the philosophy of astrology partially seem like they're responding to portions of Cicero's critique of astrology from the first century BCE. So there's some ways in which sometimes astrology adapts to um, some of the, the skeptical critiques or the arguments against it and takes into account those arguments in, in interesting and sometimes innovative or surprising ways. Uh, and that's one of the most interesting things to explore, or also seeing what the skeptics are attacking of astrology and how that sometimes tells you and gives you more insight into what astrologers believe in different periods. Like the fact that um, none of the skeptics in the early first few centuries, even though they attack natal astrology and the idea of birth charts, or they attack mundane astrology and the idea of applying astrology to nations, or they attack electional astrology like Augustine did and the selection of auspicious days, none of them say anything about um, the practice of horary astrology, which is one of the things that sort of tips you off that maybe it wasn't practiced as widely early on and there was like a developmental period. Because later in the medieval period or during the Renaissance, you do have skeptics like Pico uh, who, who do openly and, and, and quite strongly attack horary as one of the weakest or most obvious targets of criticism because of its, its premise as being seen as the least defensible. Um, so that's another reason why some of the skeptical critiques might be interesting to talk about. Yeah, sure. I mean, Agrippa also has critiques and stuff as well. And again, it's interesting because Agrippa thought of as this arch occult philosopher, and yet he has mm. some some skeptical stuff to say about well, basically everything, but astrology as well. Yeah, it'd be There's a fascinating a new, new translation of Agrippa coming out soon. So I'm, I'm excited about that, and I'm excited yeah, also. I think two new translations. Working. Oh, two. Okay, two. There are two new translations of the of the occult of the three books of occult philosophy out this this fall. I think. Wow. Okay, I knew about one of them because the translator I know has been working on it for a while. Um, mm. But then there's also I think somebody's been working on a translation of Pico for a while that I've been looking forward to as well, right? Or have you heard anything about that? Yeah, so there's a I think I think that there's a Russian scholar mm. to ask Dan my my friend Dan Atrell, um, he would know. Um that's his that's his wheelhouse. And I think that the, yeah, I think there's an entire book out actually recently about Pico's attack on astrology. I think there's a whole monograph. Uh, that puts yeah. it into context and stuff like that. I think, and it's by a, a Russian scholar, I believe. I could be wrong about that, but uh, I have to look that up to be sure. But, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's again, that's just a um, the interesting intersections of philosophy, Western esotericism, and astrology. I think we have lots of fruitful conversations uh, that we could have uh, that go on for many, many, many hours. Yes, uh, and many, <laughs> many more hours to come. So th thanks for doing this, and thanks for this discussion today. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Um, really, just uh, it's really great to be able to have a conversation with someone who operates at such a high level with such an expertise on this on this subject matter. So yeah, I really appreciate you hanging out with me and and having this wonderful conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so and your website and your YouTube channel is the Esoterica channel. And what's your website again? Yeah, you can just find me at justinsledge.com. 
Um, you can I have a actually a brand new FAQ up, um, and uh, folks can contact me there. But also, you can find me at uh, my Esoterica channel. Okay, on brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and mine, of course, is and mine is the the Astrology Podcast, which you can Google or just go to theastrologypodcast.com. And my book is titled Hellenistic Astrology: The Study of Fate and Fortune. Uh, so I just wanted to make sure both of us got our our two things in there, since we don't know where we're releasing this necessarily yet, or or whose audience is watching it. But this is a lot of fun, and I think um, hopefully they'll have to let us know in the comments. Will have appealed to some of the interests of of both audiences. Yeah, hopefully so. And again, I would really uh, highly encourage folks if you're going to have one book on your shelf uh, on astrology, it, it should be it should be Chris Brennan's. Uh, it was it was it was one of the only books on my shelf for a while. And I eventually had to pick up the campion and other stuff, but uh, uh, man, Chris, your your book does so much heavy lifting. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I always just wanted that one book that you could refer to to give you an overview of that entire you know first thousand years of uh, Western astrology of the you know Greco-Roman astrology essentially, because the last one that attempted to do that was Bouche Leclerc, which was written in like the late years ago. 19 late 1800s um yeah over 100 years ago but most of the academic literature even written in the past couple of decades is still citing that book even though it's super out of date and there's been so many more texts that have been discovered or edited or translated in the past century by academics so much work has been done but most people are still citing this 100 year old you know academic treatment which is was good, especially for the time, and in terms of what resources he had available and and what he was able to pull out of that. But um, yeah, I, I thought I wanted something that could finally replace that that was a little bit more up to date. That's great. I mean, I will say that the same is true for Hellenistic alchemy. Uh, Hellenistic alchemy mm-hmm. is still the te- the main text is still the Bercherlo text from a hundred years ago. There's been right. no the same modern- literally the same guy. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah Bercherlo. It's it's. It, yeah, it's the same thing. So yeah, there. Uh, it's a lot of this stuff is desperately in need of of updating, and I appreciate you having done the heavy lifting to give us such a wonderful book. Thank you for that. Yeah, well, and thank you for all of your amazing videos and like overviews of of some of these these fascinating pieces of the Western esoteric tradition, because you're now doing that work and making it much more accessible for a whole new generation of of scholars and enthusiasts. So keep it up. Yeah, ditto, man. Thank you. All right. Uh, well, thanks everyone for watching this episode of whatever we're releasing <laughs> this on, uh, either Justin's channel or my channel on the Astrology Podcast. Uh, I guess that's it. So we'll see you again next time. Yeah. See everyone. Thank you so much uh, for watching, and I uh, hope to see you in the comments. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, thanks to all the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller. Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, Kristen Otero, and Sanjay Srihari. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes or private subscriber-only podcast episodes, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Special thanks also to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, Astrogold Astrology Software for the Mac operating system, which is available at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code astropodcast15 for a 15% discount, 
the Portland School of Astrology, available at portlandastrology.org, AstroGold Astrology app for iPhone and Android, which is also available at astrogold.io, and finally, the Solar Fire Astrology software program for Windows, which you can get from alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount.